Wardcast episode 156, go! I'm Dylan Vento, and today I'm joined by Kevin Snow, narrative designer extraordinaire. How are you doing, Kevin? I'm doing good, thanks. How are you? I am great. I am glad. Um, hearing that you live in North Carolina, I'm glad that Hurricane Florence didn't um, give you too much trouble. I heard you had to to move, but yeah, we got really lucky. Like we did the whole like we were kind of a pre-evacuated because we were in Toronto for damage camp, but. Then we kind of had to like stay longer because of the hurricane evacuation. Um, so all that was like really scary because like all of our stuff was still here and like we didn't have anyone to get it out. Um, but luckily, like, well, not really luckily for the people just south of us, but it did just kind of like miss us entirely. So we got really lucky personally. Are you in the research triangle or elsewhere? Um, I'm on the outer banks. So kind of to the north of where a lot of the hurricane hit. Oh, wait, it didn't touch the Outer Banks at all? It did touch the Outer Banks, and there was, like, a lot of flooding in our town, and actually some, like, our neighbor's houses were flooded, but ours was just, like, completely fine, other than, like, the yard and stuff. Oh, wow. Well, I'm glad I'm glad it turned out okay. What part of the OBX? I don't want to... <laughs> if you're uncomfortable <laughs> with sharing on the recording, like, where you live, I'm, I'm just curious, because my dad used to live in OBX, so... Yeah, yeah, um, we're in Kitty Hawk. It's temporary, like, we've only been here a couple months, but here for the moment cool um because i saw you you sharing uh uh you've been watching bojack horseman season five and you were sharing like because there's a part where princess carolyn goes to eden north carolina where she's from and you said there was a lot of uh uh relatability there with uh how they wrote that that particular episode yeah it was eerie i like grew up in that town and like before it mentioned it was set in eden i was like wow this is like so familiar and <laughs> just like name drops eden north carolina and, and like while we were watching the episode my mom was evacu- evacuating to eden north carolina because she still had family there so it was it was really odd and my partner made a joke about how you know because Francis carolyn and bojack is a cat um, and our cat was currently evacuated to eat that, you know, <laughs> that was Grindel, our cat. <laughs> the spirit of your cat traveled through that show into Eden yep. to escape the hurricane. <laughs> um, yeah, fortunately we didn't, we didn't get touched here in Richmond. Uh, like it, like you said, it kind of went south of you and then like spun back up and then hit Maryland, like yeah. on its way out. Um, but we did get some, uh, tornadoes touching down uh, a couple weeks ago. But yeah, I'm glad. Um, I'm sorry for those that did get affected, but I'm glad that you're safe and sound and your family's safe and sound. Thank you. You too. Yeah, it was looking like a really, really scary for a bit there. So yeah, definitely. You kind of, it was interesting the way you kind of mixed it into because of the fact that you kind of, you work freelance and like, and also indie and, you know, being in that situation, major nat- uh, natural disasters and and kind of acts of God and that sort of thing are kind of you know if it if it hits you at, at the wrong time it can really kind of kind of put you out of the game yeah it really can like i've had a rough year already because you know i was i used to be i used to have a full-time day job in a call center and i kind of balanced that with the game development and the freelancing um and then the corporation i worked for got restructured so like that whole call center like got let go um so that was like already kind of one disaster I kind of had to recover from for the year. And then like everything with the hurricane, like 
there's not like a whole lot of safety nets in the United States. So like, although like a lot of the work I'm doing, like the people who are contracting me would understand about delays, um, their production schedules can't always handle that. So that's immediately like, okay, like if our house gets flooded and we lose all of our stuff, like that's at least a couple weeks where I'm not able to, you know, work full time. Um, that puts like several projects off schedule, like which ones might have to replace me, like that kind of stuff. It's like a nightmare. Because you also do, you do narrative design, obviously, and you have your own projects going on. And I know you contributed to uh, Where to Water Tastes Like Wine. We had Yanaman on a little while ago, um, kind of branching off of that. And then we can talk about the other projects you're working on. Kind of curious, what what did you contribute to Where the Water Tastes Like Wine? Was it a specific character? Because Yanaman kind of keyed me into like how he kind of, gave each writer a, a character to talk from um did you handle that or was it like more pick up like extra dialogue on the side or what was your what was your role there so my role i was actually on the vignette team um so when you're wandering across the map and where the water tastes like wine there are all these like little short stories and those are what you trade to the characters that you speak with um when i was brought on board all the character writing had actually already been completed um so i was a part of a vignette team and i think about eight or nine people all together contributed vignettes. Um, when I was brought on, there was already a bit of vignette work done. So I worked most closely with um, a team of four or five other vignette writers. And um, there are about 230 vignettes in the game, and I did about 30 of those. Wow, that that, that is a lot. It is, it is a pretty grueling schedule. Like We had about like two, two and a half months to do all those as kind of like a team. Um, but it was like kind of the good kind of grueling where like, you know, like ideas are flying around and like everyone's collaborating really well. Like, so it was like a really good, like kind of development experience. Out of curiosity, were you, did you focus on like a particular like part of the country or was it kind of just like vignettes, you know, kind of splattered all over? So it's kind of a mix. Um, we had like a spreadsheet during development that tracked, um, the types of stories we had, like kind of the mood of them, because every story, every vignette in the game is assigned a particular mood. And that's how you decide how to trade them to particular characters. Um, so we kind of had to look at the spreadsheet and identify what there was a need for. Um, but other than that, we had like a lot of flexibility and kind of like assigning ourselves our own subjects. Um, so although I kind of wrote like all over the place, I did write almost all the cryptids uh, in the game. And a lot of the vignettes that are set in the South or deep South are, are inspired by the deep South. Um, I wrote a lot of those as well. Yeah. I, uh, when I played it at the Smithsonian arcade and that's when I uh, talked to Yanman about it, um, the person, cause they, they weren't resetting the demo um, just cause they, they just, kind of wanted people to to feel it and experience it and um the person that played it before me was i think in the midwest i think they were up in like ohio or something illinois and i was like well i'm gonna go to richmond and see (laughs) if that's on the map and so i trucked myself down to the south and they in richmond was was on the map um and i think there was like a small diner scene or something that i played there as a vignette Mm -hmm. um and then from there, I walked to Virginia Beach, my hometown, so Southeast Virginia. And I think there was, I think it was a Johnny Appleseed vignette was the one I played. Yeah, and that one was um, written by a writer, Cat uh, Manning, who did like a really fantastic job. I think that's actually my favorite vignette she wrote for the game. Yeah, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. It, it was interesting because it was, 
it had the flavor of that story without being like explicit about it. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was a, it was a very cool kind of recontextualization retelling of that, of that tall tale. Yeah. I, I really loved that one, especially the way that like kind of the historical details were kind of incidental. And it was like a really sweet story about like a dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really liked it. Um, so you said you kind of wrote a lot of the cryptid stuff and you kind of mentioned offhand before we started that you're kind of your, your brand, your hashtag brand is more on the, on the horror side of writing. Do you want, do you want to go into that a little bit? Is like, why, why horror? Yeah, it, it's funny. Um, actually almost all the vignette writers on where the water tastes like wine were horror writers or people who have like primarily done horror work. Of course it's, it's kind of like a melancholy game. It's kind of creepy. It's kind of scary. That's it's Gothic. Yeah. That's Gothic. It's like Southern Gothic or American Gothic. It's like kind of the tone and the mood of the game. So it's okay. If there's a little more of that, I still ended up doing like a lot of non horror stuff just to kind of have to like balance out all the other horror writers. Um, which is really nice. Cause I kind of like, getting out of that box. Um, but with horror, I think primarily where that comes from is like a lot of the early work I did is inspired by like a lot of internet fiction, which kind of leaned into like, you know, creepypasta and like, you know, horror writing and that kind of stuff. Um, that kind of influence has kind of always stuck with me. So going into like the, the responsibilities of a narrative designer, and I can understand that can probably change from, from, project to project but like is your role primarily just okay here is here's the structure like here's the character or the scenario or the scene that we need you to write for or is it even more like kind of even earlier nascent stages for you where it's like we have these actions we have these verbs or this is what the gameplay feels like and how do we structure kind of the encounters narratively to to fit that yeah it's it's definitely both at some larger studios, they kind of separate narrative design and writing. So, um, well, Telltale, which unfortunately just prior to all that, they separated their narrative designers and writers. And it seemed like it worked really well from what I heard from people who worked there. Um, but in more indie spaces, you kind of like take on both roles, like uh, with where the water tastes like wine, like the narrative design was actually Yonam and like the, the structure of the game existed prior to us coming on. So that was primarily writing and where the narrative design came in with the vignettes is we would make choices about like choice pacing a little bit and like the actual structure of the story and how like choices would flow back into each other. Like kind of simple stuff, but still like a part of the writing process. Um, But with other projects, sometimes I get brought on early and I like design the entire like narrative structure of the game. And then I also do script writing. Um, on top of that, that's really common. Um, other times I'm purely a writer and the narrative design is already like established when I come on, like where the water tastes like wine. So it's kind of like a spectrum where like, you know, I have these two skill sets that overlap in a lot of ways and I end up doing kind of one or both depending on the project. And like creatively how, cause I've, you know, I don't, I don't work freelance, so I, I, I'm not that familiar with the experience of like being a freelance kind of narrative designer. And it just feels, it feels out of all of the disciplines, the hardest to kind of adapt to any one kind of game or project. 
like and I, I might be completely off base here but it, it feels like you know if a if a project does not speak to you immediately it'd be very hard for you to kind of create a narrative around it as opposed to you know other other disciplines yeah that's absolutely right and it's an area where I'm, I'm lucky that like a lot of the contracts I've had have been like really interesting and compelling like subject matters or I've had like a lot of flexibility in kind of shaping the narrative direction of them. Um, but there's certainly a lot of projects where you kind of have to stick to the principles of your skill set and the subject matter itself is a little less interesting. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I feel like that that would be its own creative kind of challenge in and of itself would be like okay this is a, a a subject matter i'm not familiar with or like usually don't touch upon in my personal work so how can how can i how can i approach this that how can i put the the kevin snow stamp <laughs> on 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 this subject matter this setting yeah it it is interesting like like i mentioned earlier i do like getting out of my box like like I make all these horror games, but like I'm also the narrative designer and one of the writers on a game called Battle Cakes, which is like this RPG about cupcakes saving the world, and it's like for mobile and like for kids, and like it's inspired by like Steven Universe and Adventure Time, which are like you know both shows that I really enjoy. So that's a kind of script writing I can really get into, but it's also entirely different from other stuff I've done. So it's like right. uncomfortable in a good way. Um. So how did you kind of start kind of pursuing your your career? Like how do, how does one start a, a freelance kind of narrow designer career? Is it, you know, you you create a bunch of spec scripts and different stuff like as example writing work or uh how how did you how did you start up? That's what a lot of people recommend. Um my personal experiences are really different just because I've been doing it for about eight years and I've had like a really unusual path into it and in that um, I made a webcomic for three years um, that was based off of Jord Fortress from like 2010 to 2013 um, and then because of the kind of the whole twine revolution that was when I got into making games I made my first twine of the Dome of Boy in 2014 um, at the time like prior to like from 2010 to 2013, narrative design wasn't really something that people talked about a lot. It was just like something that interested me conceptually, like the idea of interactive writing. Um, so I kind of just created my own projects. And then like a couple of years later, people started wanting, wanted to kind of hire me to work for those projects. Um, but it's kind of something that like happened accidentally and that I was just kind of doing something that I enjoyed. And then luckily, coincidentally, like a lot of people who were doing work, um, like Johnny and Gold, the 80 Days creators, to kind of carve out this space for commercial interactive fiction, where the skill set that I was kind of enjoying as a hobby or as an artist, as a non-commercial artist, um, inadvertently became kind of commercial. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot about like the 80 Days uh, devs are also um, kind of uh, Alec Holokwa's uh, work on Yarn Spinner and Yarn, um, yep. kind of helping burgeon that stuff from the from the indie side. Yeah, they're they're incredible. Like that's a situation where we're kind of like standing on the shoulders of giants because like Gold has been an interactive fiction scene for like, you know, forever. Um, but 
he was among the people who kind of started approaching it as like a business and that, you know, led to a lot of things that we are now enjoying as freelancers, essentially. Right. So we touched on it just a, a second ago, but the, the so the Telltale closings, um, I feel like Telltale's brand of adventure game is also a very important in the kind of where narrative design is now in games, not even just in indie, but also in AAA. Um, you said you had colleagues there. I mean, obviously, it's it's a huge shame that all these people are now out of work. And fortunately, it kind of looks like a lot of a lot of studios are willing to help hire all that talent. But obviously, it's probably they're probably not going to get everyone, and and some people are going to be have more misfortune than others. But what do you, do you also are of the opinion that like they kind of helped kind of create so much in the, the kind of current crop of, of narrative design in games. Yeah, I really do. I like, I think the impact of like all the work that was being done, um, by that studio was really important. Um, I, I think it's like they employed so many narrative designers and writers, which is part of what makes this like week really hard is that writing and narrative design jobs at studios are fairly rare. Um, so even with like, a lot of studios kind of stepping in to offer positions. Like there, there are going to be a lot of narrative designers and writers who are going to be unemployed after all of this, um, just from the numbers of it. Um, I, I feel like all of that is the result of like having so many writers and there, like all the like interesting stuff happening in telltale games is a result of having like so many narrative designers, so many writers with like an income with like, you know, stability and benefits. Um, to have like too much of a you know mournful tone but it is, it is all like really sad and, and being someone who's not very familiar with kind of narrative design in, in larger studios it it i feel like telltale might be one of the few studios that actually had like a writer's room <laughs> like exactly with the amount of people that they hired like putting a bunch of of talented writers with different perspectives and be able to bounce ideas off of one another like as much more different than having a a, a kind of uh uh, slim writing team working on a triple a game and it's like all right we have to we have to make the the cutscenes have already been made or like we've already structured out these five levels and so we have to kind of see how we can graph the writing onto that and we have to figure it out that was more kind of the style maybe coming f- five or ten years ago and less so now but i think it's less so now because of what people like the writers at telltale did and also like and amy henning and other creative leads like that yeah, definitely. Like, kind of like I mentioned earlier, like Telltale had so many writers that they were able to like separate writing and narrative design into these like granular disciplines. Like, when you get that kind of like granular with something that has like that much overlap, like you're really like honed in on that like whole focus of the industry. So you're saying you came from kind of uh, creating a, a web comic and then found yourself making games via Twine. Um, were there any narratives in games that are you would point to as like big influences for you? Um, keeping it to kind of twine first, um, definitely Howling Dogs by Portentine, um, and also all of Michael Lutz's work. All those were big influences. Um, there's so many creators in the twine space that were influential, um, like all. Uh, Kate Tremblay, who now works at Ubisoft Toronto, all of her work in Twine was really inspirational. Um, 
outside of Twine. Um, definitely more in the traditional interactive fiction space, like Emily Short, um, John Ingold, of course, like um, Andrew Plotkin. All their work was hugely influential. Um, like I've never created um, a lot of them worked on parser interactive fiction, which is where you have like a text input and you type like, you know, this is a very basic explanation, but it's like, you know, go west, go east, that kind of stuff. And you have like all these mechanics interacting in a space. Um, I don't create parser interactive fiction, but um, the way that it kind of models space has been a huge influence, um, especially with things like, you know, Emily Schwartz B, um, which is like an interactive fiction game about like spelling bee. Um, so definitely those kinds of like that kind of space design and interactive fiction has been a huge influence. That's interesting. Cause I was, I was kind of expecting like more traditional games, but hearing like Michael Lutz's work or, or other twine creators and then your colleagues of the, the 80 days creators. It's really interesting. I think a lot of the work that happens in, more traditional games that inspires me is also kind of influenced and inspired by interactive fiction traditions and, you know, somewhat by Twine, although it kind of was concurrent to, you know, Twine work. You're kind of seeing that more and more of just not even from like that the, the Twine area, like even just like visual novels kind of being, you know, raised higher and higher. Um, like Butterfly Soup was that yeah. was an IGF nominee and that was really cool. I love Butterfly Soup. I have a, the high voltage jacket that... um when the characters in that game wears <laughs> that's pretty cool but yeah so like when i think of like my narrative game or interactive story influences like i think of like gone home or the first season of walking dead and um dear esther but like you said i you're probably right where a lot of those people are directly influenced by the the smaller like parser games and and twine stuff that yeah you know, and, I, and i love those and like um like mentioning Gone Home, um, like I played Tacoma and really loved it. And you can kind of see the influence there from, of course, they talk about Sleep No More a lot in theater productions and live theater productions, which makes sense on the influence of the game. But um, yeah, you can also like see those influences of like, um, like one of the Tacoma developers, I think all of them were like big fans of Butterfly Soup. So like with all these like small, like indie narrative experiments, there's usually like, pretty direct influence and through line between like the really interesting narrative stuff happening and like bigger budget indie stuff and the smaller like DIY stuff. Right. I mean, you can even say that's the case, like going from like the small kind of under, I mean, I don't know if it undergrounds the proper terminology, but like, you know, the twine stuff, the partial stuff, how that influences the indie stuff and how the indie stuff influenced the AAA stuff. Cause like people point to that sequence in like Wolfenstein two, that's basically gone home. Yeah, where it's B.J. Blaskowitz going to his you know familial home and and interacting with all this stuff. Yeah, um, which is great and um, makes it even a greater tragedy that Telltale's no longer here because I felt like they were trailblazers in that. Yeah, definitely. Um, but also I believe you do some uh, kind of writing on the the journalistic or game criticism side because I, I believe I've seen your byline on Waypoint. Um, I'm not sure if anywhere else, but um, I know Austin Walker and Gita Jackson also contributed to uh, Where the Water Tastes Like Wine. And what I'm, I'm very curious about kind of that side of things as well, being, you know, obviously the game criticism and, and game journalist and enthusiast press are kind of like a lot of people's kind of entry point into games. Like they're not 
you know, directly listening to devs or devs aren't, don't have direct outreach. Like I was even looking at, uh, the, a bunch of, uh, telltale devs were kind of tweeting out all the other people, um, that they worked with all their coworkers and they were tweeting them out by like discipline. So it's like, here are all these, uh, awesome producers. Here are all the writers. Here are all the programmers. Here are all the, you know, game designers. And they would tag each one of their Twitter handles and I would click on them and there would be like, they would have like a couple hundred, right? It would be like five or 600. And then there was one where it was like, all right, here are our social media or PR managers. And it would be like 1500 or something like a larger scale amount, um, which kind of speaks to like a lot of devs don't really go out and do the self-promotion or self-branding kind of stuff, which, you know, good or bad, that's not the point, but I think it's interesting how a, a lot of people's kind of foray into games. The entirety of games is through, uh, the enthusiast press and then be seeing a lot of enthusiast press writers or game critics also dipping their toes into narrative design and, and games writing writing for games. Yeah. I, I've seen that arc happen a lot and always to good results because there's like a lot of interesting, like uh, parallels and overlaps um, between those, that kind of nonfiction and fiction writing. Um, and I think you see that overlap a lot more in other disciplines. Like it's, I feel like it's a lot more common for like novelists and short story writers to also be like essayists. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess in games, it makes sense that sometimes you kind of see that arc. Um, with me, the, I, I have two bylines up. I actually didn't do any journalism or like nonfiction writing until this year. Um, I have the waypoint piece, which was about disability and Frostpunk. Um, and then I actually um, did a little micro analysis of one of Michael Lutz's games for a small but excellent publication called uh, Capsule Crypt that's um, run by Dialacina. I like um, Capsule Crit. I like that. Was it interview with uh, the visual novel dev that doesn't play visual novels? Yeah, that that one was super funny. Yeah, like that, 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 that latest issue is super good. Um, so yeah, that was all that was kind of me like branching out a little bit and um obviously you know it was paid which is good but <laughs> always a plus yeah yeah um but i hadn't really done essays or nonfiction before but um i felt like i could and then kind of like a subject came up where like the timing was right and it was something that meant a lot to me um so i pitched them and unfortunately they took it um and it was really good the reaction was good I'd like to do more of that in the future if I can like fit it into the fiction writing and games writing. I really enjoyed the process. Are you aspirational to be more on the the press side? With me, um, I don't think it's an aspiration. It's like if it's aspirational, it's in terms of getting better at it, um, like as a skill um, and as like a critic. And what I can then learn from that and kind of bring back um, to what I'm doing in games writing um, rather than it being like a career aspiration. It's, it's definitely more like something that I do on the side because I find it like compelling and interesting. And like I read a lot of games criticism and a lot of essays and from a lot of writers that I really respect. Um, so it's something I've always you know, been interested in kind of doing. Well, like you said, it also helps you like hone your like technical writing. Exactly. Your, yeah. You know, your mechanics and stuff. And that's always important. Exactly. Because, yeah, like as a narrative designer, you have to make a ton of design documents. And 
you have to learn how to communicate like a lot of concepts to people who are like in different disciplines and have to collaborate with them. And in the same way, when you're writing nonfiction, you're writing essays about subjects that you know a lot about um, in some cases, but you also have to communicate them to people who aren't familiar with them. Um, Yeah. Like deconstructing ideas is always like a healthy exercise. I feel like, exactly. and I feel like it's it's something I don't do enough. <laughs> especially with when you when you do a podcast, it's all auditory, right? And it's and when we kind of you know we go off the cuff, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And uh, I feel like when it doesn't, it's just because the 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 idea hasn't calcified yet; it hasn't solidified into something that I can verbalize very easily. Exactly. Um, that's the nice thing about like writing essays that there's like an editorial process <laughs> that like, you know, if an idea is unrefined, you can kind of go back and edit it and refine it and then it gets published. Um, so yeah, all that is really nice. What actually gets like printed is like your most fully formed ideas about a subject. <laughs> right. Yeah. So for like, for like the podcast, like the only terms of like, I mean, obviously we do copy for the podcast descriptions, but like in terms of like any sort of, anything relatively long form uh, when we do like a, our game of the year, quote unquote stuff, like we'll pick 10 games and we won't do like the, all right, let's rank them one to, one to 10. We'll do like a superlative. So we're like, okay, what is, what is like the superlative that best describes the experience of this game? Um, so for something like uh, we did undertale uh, the first year we did it was one of the games and undertale was like most genuine or uh, we had super Mario odyssey, was um grandest adventure and then it helps kind of pinpoint like how you want to speak to that and then you know we go and make a short essay say like i don't know like 10 paragraphs or something maybe 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 a couple less um but just in writing those and editing them from the other people on the podcast it makes me think it's like man this sounds like way more succinct way more like intelligent like (laughs) like i cannot speak like this (laughs) yeah uh, like I had that experience talking to Austin at, at PAX West, like before we started doing the panel, we were walking around and I was, I, I, I had this kind of idea that I've spoken to about on the podcast about how like, I wish Pokemon grew up with me. Um, just in terms of like, I've had other media in my life where like I started consuming it at a young age and at an older age, it, like kind of it, it, it matured with me. And I feel like Pokemon hasn't done that. And I think, um, I did not communicate it well uh, because I meant more mechanically as opposed to narratively. Like I think the narrative of, of Pokemon is fine. Um, I actually really enjoy it. It's got a kind of like a, a, a perennial lesson to be learned about friendship. Um, but Austin was like, thought I was talking about the narrative side of this. So he started like immediately like making all these connections to like, like um, young adult fiction, uh, specifically Japanese young adult fiction. I forget what the specific terminology is, but I was just like, Oh no, like I'm not going to be able to keep up with this. Like I just talked to a media critic about media criticism and Oh no, this is bad. I, I can kind of see how he's developed the skill set from like doing podcasts and like, you know, giant palm and waypoint radio and everything. But I'm still always impressed by the way that Austin like has clearly thought through every angle of everything he's talking about, but he also speaks very quickly and like arrives at those discussions very quickly. (laughs) And that like the gears seem to be turning so much quicker than I can ever manage in these situations. (laughs) 
And I think that 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 comes from the benefit of being an academic. Like I believe he has a master's degree. I think he's he's referenced that on Giant Bomb. I believe. Um, I might be off, but the uh, you know having to go through thesis writing and defending your thesis and all that kind of stuff probably hones that a lot. Yeah, I, I'd imagine so. I I never went to grad school. I, I just got an undergrad degree, and I was like, I want to make games instead. <laughs> That's the life. So, let me tell you. Yeah. There's some aspects of that I wish I'd gone for. It it would be a different it would be a different trajectory. It'd be a different world. Like I respect the hell out of like Mike Lutz and like you know all the NYU Game Center people like Frank Lance and and Robert Yang. But yeah. I don't know it. There there's a part of academia that I don't think it's it's my speed. By which I mean I think it's too slow. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, it was too stressful for me. Like, I took, like, some graduate classes and undergrad. So I got, like, professor permission. And, like, when I was sitting in them, I could, like, envision the road before me. And I was like, I see, like, a lot of burnout. And, you know, I'm just not going to do that. The grad school road is paid with uh, plenty of term papers. I'm pretty sure. Uh, So what about playing games? Kevin, have you been able to play anything recently? or? Yeah, um... There's like a lot I go between playing things that are like mindless and like not mindless, but like kind of monotonous in a way that you can kind of zone out to and like listen to a podcast while you're playing it. Um, I think I play a lot of Sea of Thieves for that reason. It's so monotonous. There's also like a social component. Like, you know, I'm talking to my friends while we do these monotonous activities. Um, but on the other side, I play a lot of games that I feel are relevant to what I'm making because I'm interested in them. Um, like I played uh, Subserial Network by Aether Interactive, um, which, um, if you don't know about it, it's this really interesting like game that takes place across multiple windows on your desktop, um, and you're like in this internet where you kind of have to like hunt down like cyborgs by going into like these kind of like inspired by like late 90s early 2000s but still kind of futuristic like web pages and that game was like really incredible like from an air design standpoint um another one has been like extreme neat punks forever which is like this episodic series on itch.io um and i guess the elevator pitch is like um like four gay disasters and mechs made meet like beating up fascists and like desert parking lots like while the apocalypse is like you know going on um that series is really fantastic like the dialogue writing the way it's made um between the the writer slash coder and the audio designer and like the artists and all those people um so that's something that like i try to play a lot of games where like i feel like i play them and like i get something out of them from studying them um, so I end up playing like a, a lot of games on itch.io and stuff because that's usually like kind of where those ideas kind of form first long before they ever reach studio games. Although a lot of like really interesting stuff happening in studio games. And I don't want to like put down any of that work at all, but it's, you know, it's also less expensive to play itch.io games too. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe no cost at all outside of an internet yeah, connection sometimes. and a capable computer. Uh, yeah, one of my co-hosts, Will Blanton, is very, very pro-itch. Um, I am also pro-itch, obviously. Um, I think I think it's doing a lot, and I think it's going to be more. It's going to help a lot with 
like you said, twine developers and interactive storytellers in the future because it'll be like one, you know, I'm sure in the past it was very <laughs> scary for interactive developers who didn't know any web dev or how to host a website or any of that stuff, like a DNS server, like as opposed to like, all right, got to make an itch account and then I just upload all my stuff there and they will support it and people can play it there and everything works. Exactly. It takes a lot of that kind of all those middle steps out where like it, there's so much labor involved in indie dev. Um, like website design is like a skill set that maybe you shouldn't have to necessarily learn if you're in, like an indie developer. So like having a platform that kind of takes that, like reduces that labor while also having like an audience that you can interact with is really good. I don't know if you've messed with uh, Bitsy at all. I haven't, but I've uh, played a lot of Bitsy games. They're cool. Yeah, I think I feel like Bitsy for me is like the the if if we want to say that that Twine is almost purely narrative and like almost zero percent mechanical. I mean, still obviously there's mechanical elements to it, uh, gameplay wise. But I feel like one step farther towards mechanical is Bitsy, which I really enjoy because it's it's you can kind of draft out an idea very simply in terms of all like those kind of basic game frameworks i've seen game salad or construct or pico 8 i feel like bitsy is like the the easiest to kind of wrap your head around and just go and especially given the fact that it's built in the browser and you just export an html file and and it's there and it's done i feel like will help a lot of burgeoning uh indie developers in the future i think so too there's been like a lot of interesting work coming out of just that tool existing that's been really exciting to watch yeah adam saltzman like puts out bitsy games like that like just so incredibly fast and uh he did a bitsy game with uh his wife becca on train jam and then they did a tribute game the other week because both of their pugs unfortunately passed away after pax west um so they they did a tribute to to them but yeah, he, the way he pumps them out and the way he was kind of describing it to me while I was on the train at Train Jam was like, I should I should get into this more just to kind of experiment around. Because, you know, Unity can take some time to like get a prototype up and running. It really can. I'm so jealous you did Train Jam, by the way. I've, I've never, I still haven't done it. But you need to come. You got to come. Everyone's got to go. I know. It's best. Were you at GDC? Yeah, I was, um, I was at GDC in 2017 and 2018. Actually, it's 2017 GDC. It was my first game convention ever. Just, wow. you know, I'm out in the South and it costs money to go places. Um, but basically, going to conventions is always a situation of, do I know someone whose floor I can sleep on? And is there some way I can get this ticket for, like, a discounted or free rate, either by, like, speaking or, like, you know, scholarship or something? And kind of how those decisions happen but train jam i want to do some year i i really enjoy it and um i just had adriel wallach on the podcast um oh, cool. and we were talking about it and i was like you know adriel i really fucked up because now i can't not do train jam and go to gdc because that was my first time at gdc my first time doing train jam and i just really messed up like this is just a permanent fixture now when i have to go to gdc so yep thanks i need to listen to that one still she's amazing yeah. Um, as the time of this recording, it is not up yet. It's actually okay. one that's supposed to go up this weekend, uh, but it's taking a long time to edit. So, but I'll let you know what goes up. Awesome. Um, but yeah, 
I I'm super energized by that stuff. I know uh, gaming conventions can be very stressful and very draining for a lot of people, um, especially if you're running a booth. Uh, but I get really energized by them. Yeah, it's kind of both. You know, you go into them and you're like exhausted the whole week, and you have like too many like things on your schedule that are like conflicting and you're like not sleeping enough and you're staying out too late and you're waking up too early if you're going to talks or workshops or something um but then like you kind of get like you know a plus four boost uh like your energy and motivation and like inspiration for like like pretty much the rest of the year or at least like a couple of weeks or a couple of months after um yeah it's it's always like rejuvenating even as it is exhausting I agree. Let's talk about Southern Monsters, because I am very interested, because it has the word Southern in it, and also <laughs> Monsters. Give me give me the elevator pitch. So the pitch on Southern Monsters is you play a teenager in South Arkansas in 2005 who moderates a message board for people who believe in the paranormal. And at night, he goes out into the swamp um, outside his house and tries to find like a local cryptid. Well, that sounds scary. Yeah, and it's... Um, so the game is made with Unity and also Ink, um, the open source software by Ink um, Studios. And it's kind of this narrative game that's inspired, kind of like I was talking about earlier, a lot by Twine and interactive fiction traditions where it has a clock. Um, you know, it's a narrative game, and it has like a clock and it's set across five days, and every time you take an action in the game, you know, time passes. Um, so how that plays out narratively is you have these five days to, you know, do a wide variety of activities. Like, you can play with the cat, you know, you can, you know, eat some snacks in the kitchen, you can research things for the monster, you can talk with your friends online, you can post on the message board, all these things pass time. Um, but something that it does narratively is that regardless how you play the game, it keeps generating these story events. Um, like you can't do everything in the game in one playthrough, like not even close to it. You can't even do a percentage of the stuff in the game in one playthrough. Um, and kind of like an extreme example of this design, um, is Isle by Sam Barlow, which is a game where you're in a grocery aisle and it's a parser text game and you can do one action. And then you get an ending that describes what happens after you take that action and the game is over. It's kind of like that, but set across five days, so more complicated. Um, like if you speak to two different characters, um, they'll generate story events from the fact that you're interacting with both of them, um, as opposed to if you only spoke to one of them, in which case if you did only speak to one of them individually, that also generates its own story events. So it's this kind of like odd narrative design that goes like really wide. Um, and that regardless of how like with I'm I'm starting to ramble, but like this is like my whole No, go ahead. Um like with a lot of games, you know, it feels like you're kind of like digging holes into content. Like you have a character and you know, you have a certain amount of conversations you could have with them and you know, you just keep talking with them over and over again, and then you've done all the content for that character. With this game, it actually tracks game state a lot, um, so it's generating story events regardless of how you play it. Like, you know, you could talk to a particular character once a day, 
And so, you know, you can have up to five conversations with them over the course of the game. Um, but it also generates new story events. If you have a character and you speak to them once on the first day, and then you speak to them a second time on the fifth day. Um, so there's content that a player who does that experiences that a player who like has all five conversations with that character doesn't experience. So regardless of how you're playing the game, it's like giving these new storylines and these new narrative events. How does that work into scope and <laughs> scoping the game? It's interesting because all the scope is mostly in words. And that's the easiest thing to have like scope problems with. Um, because, you know, words, you can, you can just write them. Whereas the difficult thing is kind of, there's also art, there's also sound. The difficult thing is making sure that it doesn't like create scope problems with the art and the sound while also making sure that there's enough art and enough sound so that it doesn't feel like, you know, this, these weird isolated things that are happening outside of the rest of the multimedia aspect of the game. Um, it's Scope-wise, it's been a really difficult game because most of the games I make take about six months to make. Um, this one started in late 2015, so we're, going, we're coming up on three years of development. A real indie game that takes no less than four years to make. Exactly, I'm finally doing it. I'm making the real indie game. <laughs> <laughs> finally, I've been waiting. Yep. So art-wise, it's like where the water tastes like wine, where it's like images, pictorial, that show the scene. Exactly, yeah. And there's so much art in the game. There's like hundreds of illustrations. It's a really dense game, even if it like takes like an hour and a half to two hours for a single playthrough. It's, like a lot of it comes out of my anxiety of like, like I think streaming culture is like really awesome and everything, but I also think there's some validity to the fact that if you have like a really straight through narrative game that someone can just watch on YouTube or through a stream that they'll be less likely to buy it. Um, or maybe that isn't true and I'm just afraid of that. Um, either way, it's impossible with Southern Monsters. <laughs> I feel like in that that anxiety is um, is valid, and but I feel like if someone's going to go through the effort to do that, they were never a sale in the first place. Yeah, I, like people say that, and I think that's you know probably the more likely than what I fear, but the fear still exists. So it does, yeah, like economic anxiety does inform my narrative design. <laughs> Just pull pull a pull a Atlas, man. Pull a Persona Five, and just every stream, just put put a uh, oh god uh, DM DMCA takedown, man. Yeah, that's the absolute, as you know, worst way to handle that. <laughs> <laughs> like streamers are awesome. I, I love streamers. It's uh, I, I just fear capitalism. <laughs> uh, I think we all do right now. Yeah, it's a it's a everlasting fear. What what made you choose specifically Arkansas? as the setting for that? Well, um, so I grew up in North Carolina and only moved away after I was about 20 or so. Um, and from the time I was 20 until earlier this year, I lived in Arkansas. And my partner who's making the game with me, um, Priscilla, she does all the sound and the music for the game. Um, she grew up in South Arkansas. Um, and I was, whenever I would, we would go to South Arkansas to visit with like our grandparents and stuff, I would be really struck by how 
utterly similar the rural south is regardless of the state you're in (laughs) so even though it's like an autobiographical game where it's like based heavily on like my experiences growing up in like a very domestically unstable like household and like having disabilities and things um it's also kind of like it's not purely nonfiction; it's fiction so it's kind of like an odd merger of like aspects of like you know, South Arkansas and like the rural areas that I grew up in North Carolina. So you're in Arkansas for how long? Eight years. Yeah, I'm, j- I'm just very struck by that because, you know, obviously I've had other indie devs and developers in general that are from the South. And I'm just, you know, growing up, even up until maybe a couple years ago, it's kind of like, oh, technology or development or software like that's all silicon valley that's all west coast stuff or you know if you want to do east coast that's all new york maybe boston so i always always like to hear what other people from the south kind of how their personal experiences kind of affect their work but i think it's really cool that you're basing something both autobiographically on your experiences and also where you are in the world physically yeah (laughs) geographically yeah it's Part of that was that, like, because I lived there for eight years, it was a lot easier to do the research when I could just, like, drive two hours south and, like, take photos and, like, audio recordings and, like, you know, speak to, you know, Priscilla's relatives and their friends and things like that. Um, That whole, like, I have a history degree from undergrad, and so I'm always, like, looking for excuses to kind of, like, use the skill set that I acquired there. Um, That was, like, kind of a really fun way to do, like, a lot of, like, original research and stuff. What do you, uh, what's your opinions on Outer Banks? Outer Banks? Um, Just out of curiosity, like. It's really beautiful. There's a lot of rich people here. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of really rich people here and it's really weird. There's like so many beach houses where people pay like so much money, more money I've ever had in my life to stay there for a week. And it's really odd being like a couple roads down from that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so like I said before, I'm from Virginia Beach, which is another beach city. Um, and just like just north of Outer Banks, I think it's like an hour and a half drive to OBX from Virginia Beach. But yeah, I uh, it's really weird when you had friends that lived in like multi-million dollar homes uh, on the beach and you're like, oh, your house has an elevator. That's never seen that before. That's weird. It has a pool and then it's also literally on the ocean. Yeah, it's it's really odd. Like I think, I'm, lately I've been thinking about like what would it be like if I had grown up here, like even on the poor side of things, because like where I grew up, things were so poor that there just weren't any rich people around. <laughs> like, so I feel like I would have had like a much different like upbringing in some way. Um, in my experience, because I mean my 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 family was middle class, but like obviously, like I said, I had a lot of wealthy friends. Um. It just really, I don't know, it as a kid, you don't really pay that much attention to it. Yeah. Like you 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 pay attention to like the the haves and the have nots in terms of like, oh, they have this toy that I don't have or oh, they have this thing that I don't have. But it's at least for me, I never had, let's say, avarice feelings of like, well, I want what they want. Um, but I do know friends that were those rich friends that grew up later and it's like, well, this is the life I lived. 
how could I have anything but that? And a lot of their lifestyle choices or career choices or educational choices were very much directed by that. And I had a colleague that like, he was telling me what he was doing for grad school. And I was like, would well, you enjoy doing that? And he's like, I don't know. It's, 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 it's interesting. <laughs> but, and then his, his partner later on told me like, well, he wants to make a lot of money. <laughs> like, and now he's like a data analyst in like some firm in New York city. So, I mean, obviously he's doing very well and I'm happy for him, but it's just like not the trajectory I would choose for myself. Yeah. Yeah. If there's anything I can say about what I've done, I had to make a lot of very specific decisions to keep doing this over the years. Sure. It's yeah. not something you fall into, I guess. It's very, it's, it's terrifying for me. And like, it, and again, kind of wraps back into, you know, the layoffs at Telltale and even layoffs at, at any studio, Capcom Vancouver and other, other places where it's just, you know, I, I was talking to Dicey, the developer of Tunic earlier this year. And he was like, yeah, I saved up at my the job I was working at and then like I took a year off and say all right I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a shot and me you know having a full-time job I'm just like what about health insurance what about other base safety nets exactly (laughs) and like and but there's still that little part of you is like but I could do it like I could I could I could do that stuff and it might it might work out great and it might not but I obviously love everyone that's working out for yeah, it's a huge risk. I've I've always been on the side of things where like I prefer not to take that risk, which is why I had like a you know basic call center day job for like so many years because you know it was guaranteed income. It was like you know health insurance, and you know I have a lot of disabilities, so I like really need the health insurance. But then kind of you know market instability made that choice for me to take that risk. So I was like. Well, if everything, if even like the full-time day job is going to be unstable because corporations are unreliable and like fire everyone in like huge groups, like on a complete whim that you have no forewarning for, I might as well just embrace everything being risky all the time. Yeah, I can understand and kind of relate to that choice and kind of even vie for that choice. It's like, fire me, fire me so we can pursue my dreams. Yeah, sink or swim, I guess. I, sh- I should stress that this is a very, this is a point of view very particular to the point of life that I'm in having. Well, I mean, it, it, it sounds like like all your your projects are are doing really well for you. Yeah, it's, I've I've been really lucky. There's like a lot of really good stuff happening right now. Like um, I'm one of the localization leads on Pathlogic too, and that process has been really good. And, and there's like all my personal projects. And, yeah, but like with the hurricane, you know natural disasters and things can you know it's it's precarious freelancing is very precarious especially like i have family on the coast and and you would live on the coast and that stuff is super scary and it makes it even weirder that you know all these very affluent people build their structures on very vulnerable parts of land yep and while simultaneously like in many cases, working for corporations, they're hugely contributing to climate change. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, on that note, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that got grim. That's okay. It's brand branding. Yeah. For October, hashtag branding. Exactly. Horror stories. Spooky October. What's more horrific than climate change and damage to the environment? Nothing, right? It's like you know, one of my favorite books, Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer. It's all about you know. <laughs> It's ecological horror. 
Some might say the best horror. Exactly. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for talking to me. Absolutely. It's been really fun. I really appreciate it. I was really interested in speaking with you, especially about narrative design. Always like having narrative designers on. Obviously, like I really love story-based games, so I care about that stuff a lot. We tend to go on large tangents about incredibly niche things. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, Kevin, where can people find you at? Uh, best place to find me is probably Twitter, where I am Brave Mule. It's, you know, the adjective and the animal, all one word. So is that like your studio name or just like your brand, like general name? It's kind of both. Like, since so many of my projects have been non-commercial, it's not, it's pretty much just like a sole proprietorship where like, you know, I collaborate with people. It's more of an art collective than anything. Like, ideally one day, maybe we can like form into a co-op, but see how Southern Monsters says. <laughs> I don't know if you saw, uh, oh my God, I'm blanking on his name. The one of the writers for Night in the Woods, Scott. Scott Benson, yeah, yeah. He's been working on all that. I've been following his progress on that very, very curiously. <laughs> yeah, it was it was weird because apparently he ran into like a bunch of like weird stops. The American legal system is not set up for it. It's all like bosses and workers, and in some areas, it's actually illegal to form a co-op. Really? Yeah, it's it's really bad. <laughs> I didn't know that. I went to a grocery co-op in Seattle and I've, I've never really lived anywhere that had one of those, mm -hmm. but it was open later than the Trader Joe's. So I thought that was awesome. So, yeah, but yeah, but like the basic conceit is that it's just, it's everyone kind of doles in equal work or they have like different amounts of shares and then they all split the profits yeah. depending on their shares. That's an optimistic note we can end on. Unions are good. Co-ops are good. That's right. Sorry if I just made like a, political statement on your podcast we're talking about climate change yeah fair, fair. <laughs> i mean it shouldn't be political but it is it's yeah, politicized. exactly um no we are all about talking about the politics on here it's <laughs> it's it you can't take the politics out of art no matter how hard yes. random dudes on the internet try yes exactly but if you enjoyed this episode and you want to listen to any of our other episodes, you can find them at ward-games.com forward slash podcast or on Twitter at Ward Video Games, or you can download it on your podcast player of choice, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and the rest. Just search Wardcast. Kevin, thank you again for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you. Until next time.